Welcome everyone, this is Carlos from SeedCamp. Today we have a special guest, uh, someone that has been helping our companies for a while now, our expert in residence, Keith Wallington, who has a very interesting history. He's had many C-level titles at Mimecast prior to, to joining us here at SeedCamp as EIR. And what we want to do is explore some of the lessons that he's picked up over the years of helping operationalize businesses, both as, as a mentor, but also internally within Mindcast, moving a lot of processes into something that um, different organizations can implement for their own benefit. So with that, thanks for joining us. Keith, let's do what we usually do, which is start from the ground up. You, uh, you originally didn't start in tech. You, you had a different origin. And maybe you can share with us a little bit kind of what that first job that you had was right after college. Yeah, sure. Well, I think uh, my, my, I hit the labor market before tech, <laughs> so, so uh, tech couldn't be my first choice, I suppose. I, uh, my first job actually was selling encyclopedias door-to-door -door when I left school, um, which was probably a good experience because you learn a lot about what it takes to get people to buy your stuff. I did quite well. Ultimately, it was brought to an end when um, a gentleman um, held me up at gunpoint in his living room because he decided that his children shouldn't be consuming um, educational materials in English. Um, so I, that's when I decided to move on with my career <laughs> to, to, to another opportunity. Really? He held you at gunpoint. What, was he wanting it to be consumed in a different language or just education period was a bad thing? Yeah, he, he, um, he was okay with education, but it turned out, um, so what happened was I'd, I'd gotten to the point where I was no longer doing the cold calling. I was doing the follow-ups on, on the qualified leads to, yeah. to sell the encyclopedia set. And what hadn't been explained to me uh, on the lead form was that this guy was actually a member of an extreme political uh, group in South Africa, where I, where I lived at the time. And so when I arrived uh, to move into sales mode to close, um, this guy was in full uniform, which is, uh, looks a lot like um, the, uh, the Nazi uniforms. And, uh, and his first language is Afrikaans. He didn't want his children learning English. And the set we were wow. selling was in English. So he, uh, he, he placed his nine mil against my forehead and invited me to leave the house. <laughs> wow. You know, I, I just, I, I've watched these movies about people's you know, near-death experiences. What was, what was going through your head uh, as you had a gun to your head and you were thinking, crap, did I make a wrong career move here? Um, I, I, I remember the sentence, and the sentence was, the program is clearly not for you. <laughs> and then I gradually, quietly moved towards the door. <laughs> and then, you know, I, you know, not to reflect too much on the impacts something like that can have, but was there a moment after that where you're like, okay, I need to rethink my career, I need to think what I'm going to do, what, what, what came from that? Well, the, the reason why I took that job was because I, I wanted to do something that I'd never done before and that put me way out of the comfort zone. What I learned from it was that actually I have a deep, I'm deeply inquisitive about how, why people buy stuff and what gets them to the point where they make that decision to buy stuff. Yeah. So from there, I moved on into, I got a bursary to study a variety of marketing subjects. My bursary was the Association of Advertising Agencies in the US. Hmm. And then I went into a, a formal advertising school program, got qualified and moved into the ad industry. So, so that's a little bit of learning. Yeah, all right. So that was, I mean, it was obviously a, a structured transition. Um, advertising, though, is in some ways very far from the kind of stuff that you're doing today. So. Walk us through that very early stage, right after you graduate from that program, and, and sort of the first 
things that you did that sort of slowly started blossoming into kind of what you do today? Cool. Well, yeah, I think, I mean, advertising is a, is a small part of the, uh, the whole process of understanding, again, why people, why people consume various products and how to ideally, ethically, get them to use your product or try your product. And I think going through that exercise, I realized that, that there is a sequential process. There is a, there is a, meth a methodology that can be applied. And, and effectively what blossomed into, I suppose what we refer to these days as funnels and customer life cycles and understanding user journeys. You know, I think if I look back, even though I haven't uh, necessarily been a marketer for the last 20 odd years, since, since what, 25 years since I qualified, really a lot of my work and a lot of my thinking is a, is a sort of a systematic, sequential, life cycle type of process of thinking through various business problems. So walk us through what you did during that, those early years post your qualification. Well, I, I first uh, went into the ad, uh, ad industry world and I, and I was specifically focused on media strategy. So if we're looking to try and sell this product in this market, how, what are the media that we use? But not just the media in terms of, well, you know, we'll reach that audience by using TV at this time of day. But more importantly, what's the context that we want that person viewing our message in? What kind of a mood do we want them in? Do we want them in their business mode? Do we want them in their you know, personal mode? Do we want them relaxed? Do we want them, you know, what kind of a mood do we want them in? And we, really, I spend a lot of my time thinking more about media synergy and about contextual opportunities within media. And in those days, we're talking pre-internet. So we're talking early 90s, 1990 up to 95. And, you know, a lot of it was about using the media at hand, offline media, to first of all, find people in the right mood, and then second, try and apply some analytics. You know, back in those days, we were trying to find ways of basically tagging users pre-internet to think, well, how do, we, how do we track how they pass down the funnel? You know, how many people that saw the ad went to the store and tried the product, for example? And that was, a, that was a lot of the work that we used to do. So, I mean, obviously today we have far more uh, awareness of analytics and most startups that, that are any good have a visibility on their, their funnel. But there is an interesting thing you said, which is creating the right context or identifying the right context for conversion. What do, you, what, what do you think startups are doing wrong today in terms of not just having like a message that they want to get across, but perhaps not fully understanding the context the way that you, you've just explained it upon which the customer is receptive to the message? Um, I think... I think I've got a couple of thoughts there. The one is, in my experience, um, both inside businesses and, and working with uh, the CPAM portfolio, is some founding teams have, have dwelt so long and so hard on the problem that they're trying to solve, they, they innately know how to communicate with a potential customer. Mm -hmm. They can present the, the opportunity or the problem so lucidly that, that they have a very high likelihood of qualifying the of getting a sale if indeed the person they're talking to is an appropriate customer. So they can very quickly qualify whether the, the prospect they're talking to is, is, a, is a legitimate buyer or not and then, and then get the sale because they, they so deeply understand. It's the $10,000. They just get it. On the other hand, um, I think we also work with a lot of really strong founding teams where they have a very strong understanding of the domain that they're playing in but aren't necessarily commercially oriented people that um, can easily um, go through this early sort of funnel phase of figuring out whether somebody is right for the, for, the, for the product or not. 
and that's where I find a lot of my time is spent in the SeedCamp team, is, is helping those founding teams establish a standard programmatic approach to, to being able to, to experiment with how to get the right context, how to find people in the right context, and how to, how to tune that funnel. Give a good example of how you might have the right customer identified, but the context in which you are acquiring them doesn't loan itself for conversion. Or yeah. So yeah. Or alternatively, a success case, one where there is a latent customer need. You found like the point where they're most vulnerable, the context where they're most vulnerable for conversion, and therefore you just tap right into that. Well, yeah. Okay. I'll give you an example that might be a mix of those, which is a timing issue. So, not necessarily mentioning specific companies, but we might um, say in the portfolio we have a business that is doing some really interesting work in the food delivery space to business or home. And we know that you know, human beings in the Western world, in fact, human beings generally tend to want to eat at roughly the same times of day, which in itself is interesting. Mm. But if you wait until your potential customer, even if they're a repeat customer, if you wait until they get hungry and then decide how they're going to buy lunch and where they're going to buy it from, you are immediately competing with every other player within two, three miles of them you know, in, say, central London. That's a nasty competitive space to try and blast through, and it's going to be very expensive per customer to try and blast through that. But maybe there's an opportunity to pivot that back and say, well, look, we know, we know who our current customers are because they're repeat customers, even if they've only bought from you once before. And we know that they're probably going to get hungry somewhere between like 12 o'clock and 2 o'clock today for lunch. So why don't we send them a message at the beginning of the day saying, today we have these six options. Which one would you like? What time would you like us to deliver it? So you've helped them a lot because they know that lunch is dealt with, lunch is sorted out. But you've also gotten ahead of your competitors. Mm. You've locked in the deal before your customer even got hungry and started thinking about buying the product. So which brings up a good point, which is, and you know, we still haven't even gotten to the, the part of your story where you know, we focus on some of the stuff you've done in your latter years. But just to keep on down this track of advertising and competitive differentiation, one of the challenges that founders find is that as soon as somebody comes up with a good idea, everybody else starts doing the damn same idea. And as a consequence, your cost of acquisition goes up, even though originally it might have been entirely viral. Um, you know, you, you see how certain ideas like what Mailbox did with a wait list for people to download the app only works once, right? And then it becomes the trend. So with operationalizing these kinds of ideas where you say, let's reduce the time that somebody has to compete with other people for ad spend during the busy peak period, and do you're just creating a, a chase your own tail scenario in the future because now your competitors are all going to do the same thing? And how do you stay ahead of that as a startup? How do you stay ahead of an ever-evolving competitive landscape with all these kinds of things? Is it just an iterative thing or is it literally like uh, the first guy there pretty much owns it and then crowds everybody else. What, what, what have you experienced? Yeah, I think it's, I think all of the above can apply. It's, a, it's, it's obviously difficult, but it's, um, it's a good thing and it's to be embraced, I think. The, the fact that the barrier to entry is so low for so many businesses really probably should be helping us build better businesses. Mm. A couple of things. The one is, yes, it's iterative, but, but to be successful in iteration, you've got to be right next to your customers all the time. So the closer, you know, be fundamentally engaged with your customers constantly, and you will identify the, the, you know, the blue ocean, the opportunities to compete where your competitors aren't, even if it's moving weekly. So yeah, this week or, or for the next few months, the solution might be to 
offer them the choice before they get hungry mm. and you're helping yourself because you've locked in the business and you're helping them because they've made their decision and they don't have to worry about it at 12, 30 this afternoon. Mm. But maybe from that you learn something. Mm. And, it's, and it's by staying close to your customers and listening. And, and by listening, I mean qualitatively, talking to customers, but also quantitatively, you know, have probes in every part of your supply chain, of your business model, of your funnel. So you're constantly reading the metrics yeah. and seeing what's going on. You might find you might find patterns. You might find actually these people, and this is obviously hypothetical, but maybe these people that are buying lunch in advance are interested in buying supper in advance as well. So maybe you can extend that way. Yeah. Or maybe um, maybe they have other challenges around lunchtime and you can branch into those challenges. So but stay close on the qualitative, listen to your customers, and stay close quantitatively. Measuring constantly. In your experience, is that a job that requires a specialist within the team, or is that something you feel like is generally done by the founders even much, much later into the company's life? What, what have you seen works? I think the good founders are it. And that's not to say that other people in the business shouldn't also have this mindset. And I think the good founders often tend to find other inquisitive people to, to work with them. Uh, and yeah, I mean, ultimately, the business needs to start gaining specialist roles as it gets bigger. but. The really strong founders, founders I find are highly multi-skilled people, as in they can pretty much do anything even if they've never done it before, but the, but the underlying qualities that really make them successful are they're very inquisitive, quite bright, and are very comfortable with, I mean not just failing, that's a cliched statement these days, but, but it's not about being right, it's about learning, it's about constantly wanting to understand the space more. So, and and that, will, that will create a great growth marketer, a great product person, you know, they, they will flex and do any specialist role, but being really inquisitive and being robust in, in, in that focus is, I think, what's key. Mm. Okay, so if we, if we go back to sort of the narrative, we left off at consulting, and what happened after your period as, a, as sort of helping other companies through this process? What, how did you move into to Mindcast? So, yes, so I spent the 90s... Um, in consulting in one way or another, even through ad agency, even either through ad agency groups in a classic, in the classic, you know, communication strategy, marketing consultancy type of model, or directly as an independent individual. But uh, towards the end of the 90s, more and more my customers, my clients, were tech businesses because, well, because the internet had arrived and yeah. I was inquisitive. So I started working more and more with clients like Microsoft and a few other tech businesses, larger tech businesses. And, um, and then uh, ended up with two startups. And I think it was just because I, was, I started developing ideas of my own and I wanted to pursue them. And one of those businesses uh, continues to live on today. The other one, and, and I exited that business quite early on, and the other one died weeks before listing on NASDAQ when the market crashed. Mm. At which point, I went back into consulting mode <laughs> because I said to my wife that I'm going to not get a job or start another business for a little while. Um, and that was where I spent five years in the telco world. And, and the telco world was extremely interesting. And I, I learned a lot through that period, probably mm. go back to it again. Mm. Then I found myself with Mindcast because I helped them raise uh, an institutional round, their first institutional round, just, just through my network of, of uh, VCs and, uh, and sort of high net worth angels. Um, spent a whole lot of time understanding their business, fell in love pretty deeply with the business, helped them raise the round, and then a couple of months later, Funnily enough, got offered the opportunity to join the system. Leveraging the encyclopedia sales uh, experience as you were helping them raise money. Yes. Exactly. No, no gun points, though. <laughs> no, exactly. Right. That's cool. Although, and I continue to have a good relationship with the people that, made, that wrote those checks, thankfully. Great, great. So, yeah, so then what happened 
in those early days at Mindcast, how did your role evolve? To, and, and, and sort of what roles did you have? And, and maybe like we'll kind of explore the lessons learned in each one of those roles. Yeah, cool. So during the process of helping the guys raise the round, I think what we realized was I had some, some business experience. I was slightly more mature in some of my business experiences than the team were. Actually, let me, let me pause you there on the experiences, maybe for the audience. Can you just give a quick sort of Twitter length what, what Mindcast is and then how many employees there were when you when you were helping them? Yeah. Um, Mindcast is a, is a business that provides a cloud-based email solution for companies from small to large. Uh, and it's really a, it's a, it's a unified bouquet of services of uh, security, so anti-phishing, anti-malware, anti-virus stuff, um, but also um, uptime and, and uh, continuity in the event of a company's own email service crashing. And then thirdly, and possibly most importantly, is it also archives companies' emails in a very secure cloud architecture. Uh, when I joined the business, it had a couple of dozen staff and was doing about $6 million uh, revenue. Um, and when I left it a year ago, it was about 550 staff and doing 100 odd million revenue. So when I, uh, while I was uh, helping the guys raise the round, we got to know each other. And the reason why Peter Bauer, the founding CEO, called me up some months later and said, why don't you join our business, was because they felt they needed executive experience focused on the entire customer-facing part of the business initially. And so they, they asked me to join them as the uh, chief service officer, chief services officer. And that meant platform as in the tech, the grids yeah. um, that were processing email, and the teams that looked after those grids, and the service delivery team that supported customers from onboarding through support and, and any specialist function required, and absorbing their legacy archive onto our grids, etc. And uh, really, my focus, actually, through my six years at Mindcast, was pretty consistent, although in different places. And it was always on, how do I, how do I remove risk from this part of the business, and at the same time scale it, and at the same time improve customer experience? So I was looking at ways of dramatically scaling on a preferably an automated basis, or on a highly repeatable process basis, which removes risk. It also means you can scale the business like mad, and ideally always doing it in a way that improved the customer experience. And, and I don't just mean by not failing. I mean delivering stuff to the customer, experiences to the customer that delight them that they didn't think they would get. So for example, one of the challenges we had when I joined the business was to make sure that each customer's uh, service was working, we would manually, our support team, would manually log into every customer's account twice a day. Now that's a seriously onerous process. I mean, that's well, you know, early days it was 35 man hours a day, which is a lot for a business with a you know fairly small team. But there was no real benefit to the customer. Yeah, I mean, we so we check out their account, and, and it actually gave us a whole lot of insight into whether their own email systems on their own premises were were whether the, the vital organs were, were functioning or not. But it was a huge cost to us, and you could see that this is something that just doesn't scale. I mean, what do you do when you've got 10,000 companies that you're yeah. supporting? So we, we worked on automating this process, and ultimately we got it right. It took quite a lot of work, but we completely automated the process so that we could run an automated job that happened every five minutes, less than five minutes, or more frequently than five minutes is dangerous with email. Um, but every five minutes, we would ping every single account of our customers globally, and we would look for five key vital functions. And if they weren't working, we could automatically let the customer know via text message, via alternative email address, and we'd say, hey, this thing isn't working. This wasn't something in the Mindcast service. This was something deeply inside their own email environment. So by automating a process for us that scaled our service function, we also ended up providing a near real-time service for our customers that very often gave them a heads up on a 
problem in an environment that was neighboring the service we provided. And it was hugely successful. In fact, possibly even still today, it's probably the most utilized additional service that we built. It sounds to me like there's a lot of scope for waste of time uh, ideas or a scope for a lot of unscalable ideas that you could pursue, which would have an, uh, an amazing factor for your customer, but that could potentially be horrible in terms of impact to your operational efficiency. How did you prioritize that? How did you map that out and then prioritize the ones that would have the maximum yield? What I've realized subsequently is that I was going through a process that I now have, um, that I've uh, produced a much more um, uh, useful framework around, and that is really customer lifecycle, customer journey mapping. So mapping out the whole user experience for the customer and, and for every persona in the customer, if appropriate, and really stepping through in detail each step that the customer goes through across their entire life cycle. And so just very briefly, in a B2B SaaS context, the typical high-level life cycle is they discover you exist, they evaluate your service, so that might be a trial or a demo or something. They then buy your service, then they, they onboard, then they start using, then they ask for help, then they maybe use more stuff or, or, or you, you know, buy a different product from you, uh, et cetera, et cetera, and then hopefully they renew or they, and they tell all their friends. So that's at the very high level. But when you dig into each one of those stages, you can establish what metrics are the important things that you should be measuring at each stage to measure you know, typical pipeline stuff maybe, or maybe with the customer um, using phase, you know, what are the key features that we want them using and using at what frequency and to what degree. So once you've established what each of these stages is and you've established what each of the most important metrics are for each stage, you can track this stuff like the probes on a patient on a hospital bed. And that is a great way of giving you an indicator as to where you should focus next. Not just because something maybe has gone red where it was yellow or green the week before, but it just gives you a constant ongoing heartbeat kind of monitoring of the whole customer lifecycle across your customers. And that's a lot of what I think initially, intuitively, we were doing in Minecraft, but subsequently it's a much more, you know, we, we invested in that, in that framework of measurement. And now it, 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 is, a, it is a pretty well-oiled machine, so we know, we know where to focus it. I mean, to some extent, hearing you say this, it sounds self-evident to some extent, but the problem is clearly painful enough because it, a lot of people screw it up. Like it's, it's not just, yeah. it's not something like, oh, it's self-evident, that means it's easy. What are the typical pitfalls that you have seen in somebody who fundamentally gets this as a concept, but then in implementing it, something goes wrong. Where, where do people usually go wrong in implementing this? Well, I think a lot of the time, and certainly in startups or even bigger businesses, the problem is, is just sheer workload. And I think, I think very often teams struggle to focus on this stuff when they have such a high load of daily ops stuff to keep focused on. So they, they, can't, they can't see above this kind of whirlwind of, mm. of the daily cut and thrust of running their business. But even at the very early stage, um, you know, founding teams, and, and certainly my work even in the Seacamp portfolio shows me this, really strong uh, quality founding teams with great ideas. They've pieced together most of the fun, but because they're in it every day, they are, they're deeply inside the machine. And actually spending time with people on the outside, you know, like us, we can take them through a fairly method, you know, a fairly system, systematic approach of mapping out the journey. Often, and in fact I had this session with some of the guys just before you and I started talking today, often we'll show them pieces of their journey that they didn't necessarily realize really was an important element of the user journey that their customer goes on. So sometimes it's just wood for the trees. 
and get, get a third party to spend time with you or, or get off site and go and sit with a whiteboard somewhere and just think it through. But often I think the, the single biggest problem is they're thinking about the life cycle from their perspective, from, from the founding team or from the, the company's perspective. You've got to flip it over and think about it from the customer's perspective. So how did you manage to do that from within the organization, right? Because right now it's easier to talk about it because you're that third party. But walk me through the subsequent roles that you had within Mindcast and how did you keep that level of, of objectivity to create these processes that weren't bogged down with the details of operations? A couple of things. I think, first of all, and this is a really difficult one, when you're in a business that's growing really quickly, few people have the opportunity to lean back in their office chair and, and, and sort of think strategically. Most of the time, everybody's focused on the dials mm. and trying to get stuff done. But I think if I could urge the leadership in any business, in any part of any business, to really make sure you're carving out enough time for yourself to see the wood for the trees, you need to constantly realize that there is a difference between working in the business and working on the business. And in a, in a leadership role, in a strategic role, you must make sure you're giving a good amount of your time to working on the business. You are the designer of the business. Yes, you might have a job to do in the business, in processing something, but you've got to focus on the business. The second thing is, you know, as I walked through my, my Mindcast experience, initially I was the chief services officer, which was valuable, and we, we made great gains and everybody liked that. But subsequently, uh, we, we took the next step, which was we changed me into the chief customer officer. And what we did there was, it was actually off the back of some interesting um, reading that uh, Peter Vowell, the CEO, and I did on HBR, on Harvard Business Review. We merged marketing and the customer-facing teams. So they, you know, there was still a marketing team and a service delivery team and a customer advocacy team, but they all reported into one executive, which was me. And one of the reasons why we did it was because we figured that more and more we needed to go to market message that was our customer's story and not our story. So think about it from the customer's perspective, uh, as I just said, but even you know, do that in your go-to-market. Go and by having the marketing team orientating heavily with the service delivery team and vice versa, we found that customer success stories almost naturally, osmotically, made their way into the marketing team's kickback. So that was a really, really important piece, actually changing organizational design to have the right team's working very closely with each other to, to give you the outcome you want. Uh, and that worked, that worked pretty well. From there, and, and even in the, in the marketing context, you know, when I took that on, I mean, business was already growing quite nicely, but what I saw was an opportunity for, for even larger enterprise services to do a lot more from an online inbound point of view. And so what I did there was I re-architected the, um, the website and the associated marketing and sales funnel process and tech stack to be oriented much more towards the user journey of people that were looking to solve problems where Mindcast could help. And that flipped us over quite significantly in terms of the amount of pipeline we generated online inbound. But it, it, you but know, that, I mean, that, you effectively became, would it be a safe assumption to say that you went from being a direct connection to your customer to an intermediary being between you and your customer, your ultimate end user? In terms of uh, an intermediary between existing customers and potential customers? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Also, really important when you're selling into, I mean, Mindcast sells horizontally across many verticals, but we also have significant, they now, have significant um, uh, share of the legal space. And when you're selling into communities like legal or even into just broadly CIOs globally, they're a very self-referencing target audience. So, you, you know, what your customer experiences today is going to fundamentally impact your pipeline, you know, by this evening. 
because they probably talk to each other. So it does make a lot of sense to have people very clear that the customer's experience fundamentally impacts marketing and sales. But I think through all of my roles in Minecraft, my focus was, regardless of the specific subject matter that I was focused on, the process was always one of, how do we optimize this piece of the business? How do we get it absolutely purring like a kitten? How do we get the process scaling? How do we get it achieving you know, optimal output? And, and it was, it's very often, a, it's, a, it's a methodology, really. With regards to partnerships and resellers and all those kinds of things, how do you, what, what do you recommend to startups that have to go through that as a go-to-market channel, considering that it effectively means you lose control of that relationship? That is, that's a, a massive factor for me. When I joined Mindcast, we, we were almost entirely, well, so it's very much a, a channel model. Mindcast does, uh, did sell directly a lot. And you, you know, when it's you and your brand, in many markets, you have to. Because nobody, nobody will take the risk on you to sell your service into their customer base. They won't spend the time and they don't want the reputational risk of something going bad. The good news about that is you have a very tight iterative link with your customers. You don't have to have a third, you know, an indirect relationship with your customer, which means you can iterate faster. You can really learn. You can understand their problems and how you can solve them. So when I joined the business, we were largely direct. We had quite a lot of channel in those days, but the bulk of the sales were direct. And I liked the fact that that allowed me to build a seamless relationship with our new customers where marketing, sales, onboarding, service delivery was, was a relationship that handed down between people that knew each other and worked together every day. And that, from a customer's perspective, is really important, particularly when you're buying something that is a business-critical service like email archiving and email continuity. However, we did, we, and, and they have continued to gradually adopt a model where more and more of the resellers and the systems integrators and the, and the bigger channel partners have taken on more and more of the customer relationship. But I think you've got to, you've got to weigh that decision out with the power of having a direct relationship with your customer. So as our brand grew, as we had deep experience of our customers, we, I think we probably felt it was okay to start allowing others to take on some of that relationship. Of course, it's potentially a great cost saver for you because now somebody else is supporting your customer and incurring the cost. And of course, you've got to make the business model work for them. So they're sharing in the upside enough for that to, to be a viable model. But I think going to an indirect model too soon is potentially very dangerous if you cannot, cannot continue to access the end user mm. because you, 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 you just don't know where you're winning or losing and somebody else is actually developing the relationship. Mm. And so then eventually, you know, you ended up... Um, pretty much having a huge part of the responsibility within Mindcast um, towards and before, obviously, now. Um, what, would, what would you say, like, throughout that entire journey, what would you say, like, the one thing that you would train whoever you hired or whoever you had as a replacement as, like, the one walkaway point that if they could just remember this one thing, it would fundamentally change the way that they saw their business? or whoever was in the organization when you left, they were that much more strong for just remembering that one anecdote. You know, picking one thing is tough, which is why you asked the question, thank you, Thomas. <laughs> I, I, think the, I think in bigger businesses, the, the pain that I feel the most is, so change is inevitable. Bigger, bigger businesses restructure constantly, and that's not a bad thing. You're constantly optimizing the surface area and the organization, the beast, for the, for the, the, the habitat it's playing in. And that's right. However, in those restructuring processes, you're, you're, you're shuffling the deck. 
people are moving around. And even if some people leave and other new people arrive, there's this, you know, or, or, or indeed if people are just moving inside the business, the lost DNA, the lost corporate memory, business memory is profound if you don't handle the change well. And, but, and the analogy I use is um, a relay race where you're passing the baton. So when you're, when you're either overseeing uh, changes in the business or even just bringing in new people, you know, I don't know, uh, doubling the size of the product team, make sure that the new people really understand the history. Like, what have we tried before? Why have we tried it? What's worked? What hasn't worked? It's, it's make sure that you run alongside these people and let them hold the baton with you before you hand it over. So often people think that you must empower people by giving them the job and giving them the space. Yeah, I agree, but make damn sure that you are still there to inject the history and give them the, the, uh, the background that they need, the context they need to be successful in the business. So often we see people churning in companies, churning in and out, particularly the bigger, faster growing tech businesses. And yeah, maybe sometimes it's their fault, but at least half the time, it's because they didn't have the context they needed to be successful. So I think the single largest piece is, is really understand the power of ensuring people have the context of the job they're trying to get done. Don't let the corporate memory go. Don't let people walk out the door without having passed the baton mm. to people that have taken on their role. Mm. It's absolutely fun. It doesn't matter how much documentation you so shifting away from sort of your background now into maybe a little bit of future casting, if you had to take a bet as to what has not yet been solved, cracked, if you will, in the enterprise space, in perhaps in the area that you're already familiar with, what, do you, what big problems do you think that will define the next billion dollar company? Working, thinking quite specifically within uh, yeah, enterprise services and you know, the services that larger companies need to, to perform. I think we're seeing a proliferation of moribund cloud services or SaaS services. And, uh, and that's potentially not helpful. So yeah, we're seeing, we're seeing unified platforms like Mindcast offers multiple features off of one platform. But more and more, we've got IT teams adopting lots of point solutions. They just happen to be in the cloud. And that's fine, but it's creating a very disjointed, fragmented, Toolkit that companies are using to get their to get their business done, and I think I think the world will benefit from from some glue some between glue. those services, mega platforms, and you know maybe we're seeing them develop already. Maybe services like Zapier that are fundamentally web glue will evolve into significant enterprise enablement platforms that will allow you to take the twelve SaaS platforms or services that you subscribe to as a business and create some, some of the parts compound effect of allowing those services to all talk to each other, to allow the data to flow, to allow the, you know, those synapse gaps to, 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 to arc. Uh, I think that's gonna be a big opportunity and I think it's currently a big problem. We see it in the plethora of you know, cybersecurity tools and, and, and security tools that are emerging out of many markets to try and solve this fragmented security problem that IT teams are dealing with. But I think equally the problem exists at a, at a usability level data and, and feature sets. Cool. Well, that's just in time for the open data event we're about to have a little later today. And with that, thanks for joining us, Keith. And um, hopefully you guys enjoyed that. And for the companies that are interested in learning more, Keith is available on Twitter. What's your handle? At Keith Wellington. Excellent. Until next time, guys. Bye.